0: today as as we continue moving through Romans chapter 8, again we're going to start in verse 16, um, what I want to do is I want to tell you this study is going to have a big piece of the puzzle as far as debunking the whole health and wealth gospel, the whole prosperity gospel thing. But what I want to do is I want to just teach the study and then see if you can notice where it addresses the prosperity gospel. So it should be, you should catch it and if you don't I'll tell you at the end, (laughs) I'll tell you at the end. So that's that's the goal, that's the idea, is that we want to debunk the health and wealth gospel. That, that's actually just one little piece of it, but really we're going to do verse by verse and talk about some amazing, beautiful truths of God in Romans 8. So picking up where we left off last week, verse 16, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now we talked about what that witness was last week, but I just wanted to remind ourselves that's the context, because it's one sentence that takes us into verse 17. It's about us being children of God, right? And if children, then heirs, H-E-I-R-S, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I think what grabs us as we read verse 17 is this, if we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Um, And we'll come back to that in a minute. But what should grab us is the concept of being heirs of God. It's this idea that I'm, I'm an heir. Wait, I'm in, an heir of God. This is what should grab you, not the that suffers with him. Because you know sometimes it's it's like I'm going to give you this 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 shot and it's going to give you superpowers, you know. And you're like, how big's the needle? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We tend to we tend to sometimes gravitate towards the downside of things and not appreciate the virtue and the glory of things that are coming. So let's come back to that whole idea in a second. But first, let's talk about this. What does it mean to be an heir? of God, an heir, joint heir with Christ. Well first off, an heir is what? It's, it's someone who stands to inherit. They have they have a sort of a title and a position, even while the parent is still alive, they're the heir. heir let's say it's in, a, in a, a, a royal family, they're the heir to the throne, so they're treated with special treatment of course. But it goes beyond this, they're also given an inheritance when the time comes. This time can come in one of two ways, it can come either because of the death of the parent and then they step into it or the parent maybe just simply says you're old enough, you're stepping into it. You've you've reached a certain age now I'm giving it to you. Now, Now step into your heirship so to speak. So typically this is children but it's one who stands to inherit and they stand in a particular kind of position and we're given this title after Romans 8 teaches us about our adoption in Christ. So we're adopted in Christ and we're heirs of God. In other words, this adoption thing is not just an analogy. It's like a literal thing. You're adopted. You're actually his child. Let me read to you again verses 15 and 16 of Romans 8. Let's get the context just to repeat it to ourselves. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So, if children, then heirs. So, God really means it. He means it when he he tells us that we're heirs, that we're inheritors of what belongs to God. That's pretty intense. Let Let me read to you Galatians 4, 7. It talks about this as well. It says, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. If you really are his child, then... You don't, you not only live forever, but you have a a forever status as a child of God. Now this, admittedly, this is where weird preachers get way off base, and they start teaching stuff that's just way out there. But sometimes, conservative preachers who love the glory of God can ignore this heirship, and they, they err when it comes to being an heir, you know. (laughs) And sometimes they forget to emphasize what God emphasizes, and just say, hey, I'm an heir with Christ. Like it says later in Romans 8 it'll say that he's the firstborn among many brethren. That, that I'm, I'm part of the family of God, not only in a familial sense of relationship with God, but in a positional sense of inheritance. It's pretty intense. Now, Jesus is high above all others, that's for sure. We know this is clearly the case, right? So we're not at all going to suggest that like in some sort of weird like Mormon theology, where you, you actually sort of elevate and become a, a God and Jesus is just your older brother, and I mean just, as in just your older brother. That's all he is. Now he didn't come and take on flesh and then and then identify himself as as a human, but rather he he's just born first amongst our group in heaven. So firstborn's a different sense in Mormon theology. And then you can get elevated and you can become as great as God. You really can. But no, no, there's there's no one who's ever as great as God. I mean, and if you understand who God really is, omnipotent, you know, all knowing you know, all, all loving, all these wonderful qualities, then it's just silly to think anybody could ever compare to him. That anybody could ever step into his shoes or or get up and be equal to him. It's just folly to even think it. So um, Philippians talks about this. It says Jesus, he came down. It's like, it's got this like down up theology that we, we get it in Hebrews too. This down up theology it appears a lot actually where he he's, you know, he's equal with God, he comes down, he's on the form of a man, a servant, and dies. Then he's exalted and it says above every name, and at his name, everyone will bow. So though he is the firstborn among many brothers, there is a sense in which he's escalated and elevated far above and beyond any of us, rightly so, because he's not only man, he's God-man. But that being said, some people, they do minimize this heirship, this sense of what we inherit, um, so he's overall. Jesus is overall, but I'm over some stuff too. And you are too. In Christ. And we're waiting on this inheritance. It's it's we're heirs. It's it's coming. It's not there yet. It's coming. But but let me let me uh, I want to have a balance. So I want to have a balanced view of everything biblically. So let me read to you what I think gives us a balanced view. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and there's a couple verses here that I think give us a very good perspective on how to view this so I don't become over overblown with myself and at the same time I don't diminish what God has given me in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 21 through 23 it says, Therefore let no one boast in men for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now he's talking to them about petty quarrels and quibbles about who's who's got the best ministry. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Like, well, I'm part of this denomination. Oh, well, I'm non-denominational, which means better than denominational or whatever. You know, that we, we can tend to divide over these issues and, and and he's like, You're quibbling over this stuff, like, but everything's yours. You're 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 an heir with Christ. Whether it's what? And he names a few things. Life or death or things present or things to come. It's all yours. And you, you are Christ's. And Christ, Christ is God's. Now, personally, I don't know exactly what this is going to look like. Um, And I don't want to just make stuff up. I have literally heard, (laughs) behind closed doors, heard people talk about how many cities they think a certain preacher is going to have in the millennium or something like this. And I think, like, really you're, you're getting a little too imaginative at that point. But I do know this, that Christ owns everything, and he's sharing it with us. And he's sharing it with us. And we're talking about the new heavens, the new earth, that his kingdom comes, his will be done, right? But that we are not only servants in this kingdom, we are also leaders in it. We are leaders in it. That's interesting. Now, personally, I'm more humbled by this than anything else, because I know I don't deserve it. And to think that God has me, in some sense, ruling and reigning with Christ. I don't, I don't deserve this. I'm completely humbled by this. I wouldn't ask for this, like the Psalm says, right? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. But it doesn't say that you will be a doorkeeper in the house of God. It's just that it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than it is to be in the palaces of the ungodly, right? But, but I'm actually elevated as an heir with Christ. I mean, it's plenty just to know Christ. I'm totally content. Just, Jesus, I'll just know you, and I'll be like the dishwasher in heaven, like the equivalent of that. And I'm totally happy with that. Like, I'll pruny fingers for all eternity, but I know Jesus, and I'm totally content. And yet he decides, no, I want to elevate you way beyond that. Why all by grace? And um, I don't understand this. I would never have expected it. I just would have thought we'd just earn, you know, nothing and be given heaven, but not the expectation of some sort of ruling position in the the universe to come, so to speak. But I think that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point, that this… This, the flesh leaves me condemned at the end of Romans 7, but then Christ, he not only saves me, he delivers me from, from judgment, from hell, from death, from sin, he delivers me from the bondage to sin, he delivers me from the, from the, um, the broken relationship between me and God into a close relationship where I call him father and then I have an inheritance above and beyond simply existing forever, but actually ruling and reigning with him, which I'm almost scared to talk about it because it just sounds so crazy, It just sounds so much... I don't know what that'll be like. I don't know what that'll be like but I know that it's going to be sharing in his glory in some sense. He's still far above us but we're sharing in his glory and I'm, I'm blown away by that. Now <clears throat> let's come back to that other part that probably grabbed you like it grabs me in verse 17. It says that we're, if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Now this is one of those verses that the, um, that the works for salvation people will grab onto and use, and they'll quote to you, out of context, of course, because that's the only way that that works. <laughs> the only way works works is out of context. <laughs> but they'll quote it to you, and that's really not what he means, okay? And I shouldn't even have to tell you this, because if you've been going with me through the book of Romans, verse by verse, you know that Paul has made it abundantly clear. Abundantly clear you are saved by grace alone through faith alone apart from works There can't be any debate on this point in fact he even goes so far as to say otherwise work is no longer work Like that's not even he's like you're just changing definitions You're basically being like an atheist at this point. I'm just gonna change definitions of words in order to in order to get away with stuff well um, And not all atheists do that but certainly enough that it should be mentioned, but but what is it? What is he saying then? Um, well, Paul can say this because of all the trouble he's gone through to establish salvation by faith apart from works. So what is he really saying? He's saying, if we suffer with him because of identifying with Christ, because I'm in Christ, I am now not of this world. The world does not love me, but the world hates me because it hated him. So now I suffer with Christ. I have an inheritance, but at the moment, I'm not enjoying it. And so... I am persecuted in some sense by the world, attacked by the enemy, the world of flesh and the devil are opposed to me and I suffer with Christ in these things. That's the with him part. Think back to when Jesus confronted Paul the Apostle before he was the Apostle. And Jesus comes and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he mentions himself, why are you persecuting me? Meaning that the people Saul was persecuting at the time were suffering with Christ. Because when you persecute Christians, you persecute Jesus. When you put believers through pain, you put Jesus through that by identification. They're part of him. That's why 1st uh, Peter four sixteen. I love this interesting verse. It says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. He separates it from suffering because you are just being a knucklehead, suffering because you just blew it, but he says to suffer because you are a Christian. If you suffer because you are a Christian, glorify God in that matter. So we suffer with him, that is the with him sense, suffering for being part of God's kingdom. We ought to expect this kind of suffering. We should expect it and we should be ready for it and willing to face it. I am not saying we are, I am saying we should be. Ideally, as Christians, we should be ready and willing to face the suffering and I don't think it's because you have to reach this great depth of years of following Jesus so you can be ready to face persecution. I think that there are many people who get saved and five seconds later are ready to die for Jesus. Because it's just about getting your eyes on the right thing, you know, and we should be ready and willing, but guard yourself against something because it's one thing to realize that we will suffer persecution in this world before Christ most likely to some degree or another, and I'm not going to pretend like I'm suffering the same degree of persecution as as someone in North Korea is right now. Um, but but let's not become pessimists. Let's not become Christian pessimists. Well, Satan's the power, the ruler of the world, of the air, the air of the world, and something there. and it's all going downhill from here. <laughs> Just give up, man. And I, I I'm not kidding. I saw a conference not too long ago. That was, it was, um, it was, I, I was, I'll share it with you guys. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, but it was embarrassing to me because this conference was about uh, trends in the church that are like bad trends. Uh, there people are departing from the faith. The problem was they started seeing everything as apostasy. Everything's apostasy. It's like, oh, this pastor tied his shoes differently. He must be part of the emergent church movement, you know. it's like, <laughs> It's like anything at all, you know, like, Pastor seen in McDonald's drive through He must be part of the Emergent Church Movement. It's, and so the leaders of this group have become such terrible pessimists. And I, I talked to one of them, and, and I, said, I said, what do you think are the chances that there will be a great revival any time before Jesus comes back? And he was like, I just do not see it happening. And I was like, I, and I just thought, like, do you suppose that when Christians were being murdered for their faith over the past 2,000 years, they might have felt kind of pessimistic too? That some of them might have felt like, oh, it's all doom and gloom. It's all downhill from here. You know, the gates of hell shall prevail. (laughs) Isn't that what Jesus said? (laughs) I think I left a word out, an important one. So we don't want to become pessimists. I want to have an optimistic attitude. And I'd rather err on the side of optimism when it comes to spiritual things than anything else anyways. Um, It's much more healthy for your own heart and mind. And it, but it can become where you just start to get embittered, you start to get a little down, start to get a little gloomy, and then it can even start to feel good to like, you know, be that kind of like Christian, the spiritual weatherman, you know, where you're always forecasting rain. It's just always rain. You, you, you look out at the world around, oh, it's all, it's all going downhill, abandon ship, you know. And, and this, this is the only one to guard ourselves against. So, in one side, expect persecution. Expect their suffering with Christ. On the other side, don't become a pessimist and, a and like, mopey about it. Uh, there's still the joy of the Lord. There's still a great hope. Because, and think of this vision that Daniel had, right, where he sees the statue. It's got the, the different uh, materials it's made out of, the gold. It's got the, the, what, the bronze and the various different materials, the clay down at the bottom mixed with bronze, all the toes, all that. But here's the cool part. They each represent different kingdoms and then here comes this stone not made with hands and it destroys the statue and it grows and it fills the whole earth. God's kingdom is going to be victorious. God's kingdom is going to be victorious. He's going to win and not just because he comes back and takes over but also because he is right now invading the world and people are getting saved all over the place all the time. There's more Christians alive now than have been alive at any time in history. And so we want to suffer with him, but don't don't be a poopy face about it. Um, That's my interpretation. So we suffer with him in one sense because of the hate of the world and because of spiritually identifying with Christ, but there's another side in which we suffer with Christ, and that's where Jesus sort of suffers with us. And that's where we're going through hardship in life. The world is corrupt. The world's fallen apart. Maybe your body's fallen apart, right? The things are falling apart around us. And so we're suffering, and he's with us in it. And so we suffer with him in that sense as well. The the bottom line is, verse 17 talks about the fact that there's a glorious time to come where we enter into our great inheritance. And for now, we suffer with him. We suffer with him. Verse 18, let's keep reading. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now let's, this, this verse is so extreme in what it is saying. There is suffering in this time that is beyond words. It is so bad. Beyond description to explain the pain and the hardship and the suffering that some people are going through right at this very moment right now. Somebody today just got the worst news of their entire life, and they're thinking I don't know how I will ever deal with this. Somebody else has been going under a burden and under suffering and some hardship that's hitting them in a deeper way than they knew was possible, and it's just been going on and on and on. The sufferings of this present time are incredible and they're bad. Some people they want to act like like we're just supposed to pretend it's not happening. Like there's this old uh, song, "Happy Plastic People," like "Happy Plastic People," and and it's an encouragement for for believers not to do that, not to just pretend everything's. How are you doing? Fantastic, always. My mouth hurts from smiling. <laughs> like that's that's like a la la land theology where I'm just going to fake it and and put on a put on a face and pretend that nothing's there, nothing's wrong, and that sort of thing. And I think it's interesting that there's, there's people who preach that every believer is supposed to get healed all the time, that, that that's kind of what we should expect, is to always be healed, always be healed, always be healed. But these people also preach something alongside this. Now, think about why they would do this. They tend to preach alongside this, a sort of pretend you're healed mentality, because you're claiming it. You got to claim it. You got to profess it and confess it so you can possess it and you've got to say it and you and uh, are you healed are you uh, I'm healed I'm healed and they're thinking like not yet but if I keep saying it maybe I will be because what you have to do is when you have pretend healings you have to have people pretending they're healed they go together I don't think that the leper who Jesus healed was like it's not any better and Jesus is like whoa you're quenching the spirit just say you're healed okay and eventually it'll happen I think that that's a joke and I think it's an insult to true healing, which God does in fact do. So why is it those who preach constant healing also preach for people to pretend that they're healed? Why? Because it it keeps up, you know, everybody's got to keep, it's like that game where you have to keep the ball in the air. (laughs) Don't let it touch the ground. Um, But so that's a bad response to suffering. As Christians, we should look straight in the face of the most difficult sufferings of life and we should be able to say, that suffering, that terrible, horrible suffering is not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. This is a real solution. This is a real fix. We overcome suffering with truth. Christianity has no empty platitudes. I remember being at an atheist funeral. I used to work at a company where we would release doves, those pigeons, you know, white doves at funerals. And, um, and one of the funerals I attended was, a, was an atheist funeral. And, the, and there's a thing we would share about John 14, and we'd, we'd share it, and they were like, we don't want you sharing anything. And I just sat there, and I'm very polite and stuff. I, my heart grieves for this, these people, and they've lost someone they care about. And, but it was an atheist event, and so they just read, like, this poem, and it was just, like, really sad. And then there were... I, at a Christian funeral, had never heard so many empty platitudes as I did at the atheist one. But as Christians, we don't have empty platitudes. Empty platitudes where you offer people like encouragements that don't actually mean anything. Like that's an insult to true true Christianity. It's an insult to us. It's like, ew, why are you doing that? It's like serving your kid like rice puffs instead of that lasagna you just made. It's like, why would you, why would you be giving this out when you have this? You have a real hope that you can give. Now some people are cold and rational, some people are emotional. I do not know which where you find yourself on the spectrum. Maybe you find yourself more, uh, not cold in the sense of care, uncaring, but you are more stoic, you know, and you are more just rational thinking. Like you just tend to be like, hmm, yes, that is, that is in fact true, okay, I will live accordingly. You know, maybe that is you. Maybe you tend to be more emotional. And you tend to need more, like, I got to get my feelings on board with this thing in order for me to, to, to step into it. And some people are both. As Christians, I actually think it's great if we're both. Uh, I think it's fantastic to try to, if, if, you're, if you're not very rational, to try to become more rational. If you're all rational and not emotional at all, like, that's part of being human, right? Like, you should be emotional. Like, we should have emotions. We should enjoy those things. Just don't let them control you. But I think either way, you should get this verse, this powerful verse, verse 18 right I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us if you are rational you should literally be able to take the sufferings of this life as bad as they are and then put them on scales and compare them to eternity in glory where God works all things together for good and has more comfort for us than we can imagine where he gives us his presence makes us co-heirs with Christ and then go these really are not worth comparing rationally. Stoically, I have realized that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. <laughs> Live long and prosper. <laughs> you know, it's just logical. You know? There is that, 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 that sort of you know, rational side. Then there's the emotional side and in that sense, maybe you shouldn't be thinking about the scales, maybe you should be thinking about the glory. Think about the glory that will be revealed in us and the, I can't imagine. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I don't know what that's like. I'd never ask for it. I don't deserve it. But that's amazing. Does it comfort your heart? Does it lift you up? Can you now look at the deep, difficult sufferings of life and say, you know what? If there's anything that gives me comfort in all this, it's that. And that's the only thing. That's the only thing I can think of. Eternal glory certainly gives me comfort in the middle of the sufferings of life to the point where it's not even worth comparing I know some people have said they have questions for God. I've heard this several times from people and I've never really responded out loud so I'll do it now while their back's turned. Um, They go, I have some questions for God. When I die, I've got a few questions for God and I've always just thought to myself, really? (laughs) Like like I have lots of questions for God in the sense of I just want to know all sorts of stuff I'd like to know but this is different. This is like I want God to answer to me. Like That doesn't really work that way. Doesn't really work that. Way. You ever try that on your parents? <laughs> your parents come home late. Where were you? <laughs> like, they just laugh at you. Go to bed. <laughs> you know, it's like it just doesn't really work that way. But but think about this. Maybe you have questions for God. Think of this this idea that God, it says in Scripture, He'll wipe away every tear. Now I don't think we're actually carrying our tears up into heaven. I don't think I get there and He's like standing there going like wipe. Oh, another one. Wipe. <laughs> Wipe. Wipe. I don't think that's what it means. What is meant by the symbolism of wiping away tears? It's that the tears are an embodiment of your sorrows. And God is saying, "I'm taking away the need for sorrow." I'm not just going to answer your questions. I'm answering your sorrows. And that that's powerful. That's powerful. So I think it is a bad idea to minimize suffering like some people do, and they try to make things feel better by just making it look smaller. The suffering is not as bad as it looks and that kind of thing. Um, In some cases it is not, but we do not want to minimize it. Uh, The solution to suffering is do not minimize glory. That's the solution to suffering biblically. It's not to minimize suffering. It's, it's to maximize glory. It's to realize the glory that is to come. Seriously, it is not even worth comparing the two. And that blows my mind. I think verse 17 of Romans, or excuse me, verse 18 of Romans 8 should be as much of a memory verse as Romans 8, 28, um, if you ask me. So let's keep going. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation... Now we're we're moving into the subject of the creation. We're going to talk about the creation for a minute. So, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to take these verses out of order because it makes more sense in my brain. So, looking at verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. That's the thing that happened first. Maybe that's that's why I want to start there. The creation was subjected to futility. This is the same word used in the Greek version of Ecclesiastes when it says that it all is vanity and it's all like an emptiness, like it's it's futile. And creation is glorious I mean, it is absolutely glorious. If you look at those images from the Hubble telescope, you're just like, wow. Actually, I look at those and I think, is that Photoshopped or is that, I don't know if that's real or not. Like, how, somebody tell me, is that real? Um, <laughs> or did they mess with it? I can't tell anymore what's real. I don't know, man. I saw a cat with a dog head and I wasn't sure if that was science or Photoshop. Um, but yes, creation subject, it's glorious, but it's subject to futility because creation's not quite right. It's beautiful, it's amazing, but it's not quite right. So you're out at the beach and you're like, oh man, it's it's beautiful, it's so great at the beach and you get home and you're like third degree sunburns, you know. You're like, something's not right here. There's there's elements of creation, I'm being silly, but there's elements of creation that are obviously show there's a bondage of corruption. That's what it says in verse uh, 22, or 21, I'm sorry. Um, the bondage of corruption that all of creation is experiencing. I find this really interesting, because in the Christian worldview, it sees the universe as being designed, and being neat, and being glorious, and being amazing, but also being corrupted. Not just people, not just humans, but the whole of creation is somehow in a state of corruption. Humans can be beautiful, glorious, and glorious as as well, and creation can be the same thing. So not just man is in a state of corruption, It um, it is creation itself. And that really settled my mind when I realized that, that that Christian worldview was not preaching that this was, this was all there is. is. Like, hey, it, you mean this is not the ideal. That is what is coming. That encouraged me. Um, then it talks about why creation was subjected. This is in verse 20. Creation was subjected, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And God is the one who subjected it and he did it in hope. Creation in a sense is like, The law. Let me draw an allegory here, a parallel. The law was needful but it was meant for a time and a season and it was to usher in Jesus Christ. And so creation being subjected to corruption is needful for God accomplishing certain purposes and it is going to be ushering in a new creation that is not subject to corruption. There is a coming better creation. Let me read to you 2 Peter chapter 3. It talks about this creation. 2 Peter 3 verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. It'll go boom. Like that's the sound. It'll actually sound like I'm saying boom. (laughs) And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That's the demise of this corrupt creation corrupted creation. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That's a good question. It's all going to burn. So how should you live? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells." This is a temporary creation, just in the sense that the law was a temporary thing. That's interesting. So creation is going to come with us into verse 21 of Romans 8, the, quote, glorious liberty of the children of God. That when we are brought into our, this full glory that God has for us, though, then creation is also renewed and brought into that full glory as well. So it is liberty from bondage, liberty from corruption, liberty from all those things. Uh, this is why, back to verse 19, since I have done it all, all wonky, uh, verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. There is this eager waiting, like it is just, it is going to happen, it's, the music is building, it is that, it is that unresolved note, you know, for guitar players, I would play G, C, D, 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 where is it? G. You've got to come back to that root note before, before you can feel settled in that sense, the creation's waiting. I really wonder what this is going to be like. What the new heavens and new earth are going to be like. I mean, we don't spend eternity up in, up in heaven, like I want to say up, like, I mean, the earth's a ball, so like everywhere's up from here. But we don't spend eternity up in heaven, so to speak. There's a new creation, new heavens, new earth, and then on this new earth, it's not even this earth, it's a new earth. There's this massive city Revelation talks about. I take that fairly literally. and there we are, living in the very presence of God. But I wonder, this new heaven and new Earth, what will it be like? Well, there's some things we know about it. We know, like it says in Second Peter, that it's a place where righteousness dwells. There'll be no sin. It's perfect righteousness, and you're there. I mean, that's a miracle, right? <laughs> God's presence will be with us like never before. His presence like never before. The description of his presence is like this in Revelation that, that there will be no need for the sun because God himself will be the light. Wow. Let me read to you Revelation 21 4. It describes this, this new thing. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And not because God says, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about but because there is nothing to cry about. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Now, let me highlight two of those for a second just for, for fun, right? There is no death and there is no pain. How? How is there no pain? Like that does not even work in the world we live in right now. Like if I do not have pain, like I am going to cause a lot of harm to myself. There is all sorts of things. Like I will not realize that like I left my hand on the stove. <laughs> You know, I I be very careful. I like, I like to do tortillas, like Mexican mama style, like the right way. You know, just my bare hand over the fire, with the t- tortilla. That's the way that, that's, it tastes better that way. If it wasn't for pain, I wouldn't be as quick and I'd probably get injured. How is there no pain? But the text just simply says this, the former things have passed away. Everything's been new. Creation has given birth, so to speak. It's, it's the new things come about. What's it going to be like? I'm not entirely sure, but I really do wonder how can you put this together that this will be accomplished. It is a new creation. It, things are different. Let us keep reading in, in uh, Romans 8 verse 22 it says, For we know that the whole creation, the whole creation, that is the whole universe, groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. This is the scope of the problem. It is all of the universe. Now, now this, this is where, this is where like I am bringing up these guesses and I think it is fun to guess. It is fun to guess. Like, Maybe the laws of physics will just be different in the new universe. Maybe they, maybe they'll be totally different. Maybe they will. But let's be honest. We don't really understand the laws of physics right now. (laughs) Most of us. So, so, guessing at how they'll be different might actually make me start to look a little silly. As I start to put my guesses onto the scripture. So I want to say it's fun to guess things. And I want to wonder things and, and ponder things, but I don't want to go too far with it because guesses can become hobby horses. And this can happen in any area of scripture. Eschatology is one of the big ones where it's about the end times. We start to go well, like, what about this? Like, I know these, these creatures in Revelation are Apache attack helicopters. I can prove it. And you're like, okay, like if that's where you want to like, you know, hit your post, you know, plant your flag, <laughs> die on that hill. Um, the problem is guesses can become hobby horses. Hobby horses can quickly become doctrines And doctrines that aren't based on the clear teachings of Scripture where you, you know, just draw a line where it says here's how much we know from Scripture and here's how much I guess from Scripture and just call it guessing. I like, uh, Chuck Missler would always say this, he goes, now this is conjecture, which means guessing. (laughs) I'm just going, maybe, and he would just say stuff that was like nutty sometimes and really neat sometimes, and it was fun to listen to as long as you understood that it's guessing. But let's remember the difference because it can become doctrines and then those are distracting and they can also make you look kind of foolish in the long run. Especially because in hindsight, some of the stuff, every time somebody guesses at who the Antichrist is, later generations laugh at them. Every time. So why are you guessing? (laughs) You're going to laugh at you in 20 years. We have no idea God's timeline on these things. Um, So we, we uh, we should be humble about those types of issues. But... But we can say this, something, uh, this is kind of neat. Something really big is being accomplished by the time of corruption the universe is going through. The fallen, I don't want, I'm going to use the word fallen exactly, but the word corruption is what's used in the text. The, The universe is subject to futility, creation groans, and something's being accomplished. That's why in verse 22, it talks about these being labor pains. Labor pains are worth it, because they bring forth a child. They are bringing forth something. And this corruption that the universe is in is the birth pangs for what is being brought forth, which is, I think, the new heavens, the new earth. Actually, it is a lot of things. It is the new creation. It is a saved people. It is the glory of God in redemption and love, which would not be possible without without the particular story we have got going on in the world. Um, The glory of God in judgment. Yeah, God's glorified even in judging those who reject him. That is his glory revealed in that. That is not a bad thing in a sense, like as though it were evil. It is God's justice and goodness and glory that's accomplishing judgment. And it's the the wonderment of free will creatures choosing to love and know God and God exalting us into this close and glorious relationship being co-heirs with Christ. That's all this is being done through this time of birth pangs. Now, some people act like the labor brings forth nothing. And could you imagine? Imagine we live in a world, thank God we don't, where all the suffering, and all the hardships, and all the pains, and the heart piercing hardships of life, bring forth nothing. That's the world of atheism. There's no point, there's no purpose, there's no reason, there's no plan. That's the world of atheism. I, I, I've i asked atheists who, I've, who I, I actually like, love talking with atheists, and, and trying to reason with them and them with me hopefully um, but but i've never heard a good case for any purpose behind pain behind suffering or any purpose of anything within the worldview of atheism but in a christian worldview this labor brings forth something keep this in mind when we get to romans 8:28 because he's it's all connected it's all connected when we get to that, that, that verse you know that one verse you know in Romans eight. No, I'm sure you know more than that. Um, okay, verse twenty three. Not only that. Not only that. There's more. But it, it, it's maybe not the, the. And there's this good thing. It's actually kind of the other way around. Uh, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit. That the, the first fruits of the spirit here is I'm, I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit and I have this Abba Father relationship with God. That's the first fruits. But there's a later, full fuller fruit coming that glorification so even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body so i groan too not just creation creation groans and i groan and we'll get there next week but the holy spirit also groans <laughs> and uh, for us so to speak but we groan too i i i have a habit and maybe it's a bad habit i tend to ask people all the time when i see them hey how are you hey how's it going how are you doing and sometimes, I've, recently, I've been thinking, like, maybe I ask that too much. Because then, like, if, if people ask you that every day, you just end up not being able to answer them. You're like, well, I'm just like, how are you? Well, oh, uh, oh actually, I'm having a really hard time. I mean, like, as they keep going down the road. It's not that we don't care. It's just that sometimes it's not the best moment to share. Um, but, but when people ask you how you are, you, you always reply, totally awesome, right? I'm, I'm fantastic. I've never been any better. Um, now, I know Christians who always reply in the negative. How are you doing? And I've known them for like years, and I've never heard them doing good. Not once. Not once. I mean, they could win the lottery, and you could go, how are you doing? They go, oh, these taxes, man. <laughs> it would always, it's just always like, it's not good. Nothing's, nothing's really ultimately something to be rejoicing over. But then there's the other side, where we think that we always have to be smiling. We always have to be... Um, like happy-go-lucky or something like that. And first off, that's not true. Like, and, and no one's accomplishing this. Not me, not you, nobody. But neither did Paul the Apostle. Let me read to you Philippians 2.27. Now, this is the joy book, right? Philippians. This is the joy book of the New Testament. He says, he's speaking of his friend who is sick, Um He says, for indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. It would have greatly grieved Paul. And he's just honest about it. Man, I would have been so sad if my friend died. I mean, he's going to be with the Lord, but I would have been wrecked. I'm doing this ministry stuff and it's hard. And he's my ministry partner and I love him. And he's my friend. And I would have lost him. That would break my heart. But Paul, cheer up, joy of the Lord. And he's like, no, you do not really know how this works, do you? The joy of the Lord is the thing that comes under you when you are in the sorrow upon sorrow. It is not the thing that makes it disappear. It's, it comes underneath you. It comes and holds you up so you do not go into the depths, you know. The joy of the Lord sometimes is rejoicing in the midst of sorrow and grief, not in the absence of sorrow and grief. Just like, you know, courage is not the absence of fear. Well, joy isn't necessarily the absence of sorrow in this case. As believers, we too groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption. Man, things are going to get so much better. They're going to get so much better. And so it's what we look forward to that brings us joy. It's not always what we're going through that brings us joy. um, This should seem obvious. (laughs) This should seem obvious, you know. Uh, Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope? for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, this is where the, I like to point out where people would misuse the scripture, right? This is where um, some skeptics would grab these verses and go, ha, hope that's not seen, that's blind faith. This is where your Bible's telling you to have blind faith. And I, I'm, no, I'm a big proponent that the Bible does not teach us to have blind faith. Now, faith, yes, but if by blind faith, what I mean is faith for no reason whatsoever. Like just believe it to believe it because you should believe it. But then I could believe anything for that same reason. I mean, I, I want to believe God because I trust in his goodness and character. That's a good reason. I trust in the goodness and character of God. But, but no, this isn't blind faith. This isn't actually talking about that at all. Um, this is talking about hope. Um, so there's a difference between faith and hope, right? Faith is what I believe. Hope is what I expect. Faith is about the things that I believe are true. Hope is about the things I expect to happen. Like I believe my wife loves me. I hope she makes me some food. (laughs) I expect a specific thing to happen, you know. So this belief and hope are not the same thing in this case. Obviously, if you're hoping something, it involves an element of faith, but they're different things. So this isn't about blind faith. Uh, in fact, the word unseen here, it's referring to things that have not yet happened. That's why it's hope doesn't exist if you see the thing, because, boy, I hope I have my Bible. No, I don't. I have my Bible. I'm not hoping. I have it. You know, hope is about what was going to happen in the future, but it's not this tentative, oh, I hope so. You know, it's rather, it's a confident expectation of what will happen, but hasn't happened yet. That's why it's hope. So hope that is seen is not hope. We don't, we don't hope for what we see. We hope for what we do not see. We eagerly wait, it says. Eagerly wait. I think that's interesting. So what we do not see here where the co-heirs, this new creation, the, the birth pangs in your life of what God is going to bring forth in the future time. I'm waiting on this. I have not yet seen it, but I should have an eager wait. There's different ways to wait in life. You know, wait on the Lord. But am I waiting eagerly? Am I eager? Eager means there's a present anticipation for that thing that is coming in a future time. But sometimes we treat heaven. The older we get, in a sense, we're getting closer to heaven. The older we get, but we treat it like heaven's getting further instead of closer, and instead of creating more expectation and more eagerness, we almost are like, yeah, I know, I know it's coming eventually. I know, I know. but really, um. It is needful for a believer's mind to be healthy. We have got to have a present expectation of heaven in our hearts and minds. Not just that I die and I will be in the presence of God, but also the whole scope of the new heaven, the new earth, the glory that is to come co-heirs with Christ, all of these realities. Let that be an eager thing. Let me give you an illustration from the book of James. If you would turn to James chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. This is a a passage that confuses a lot of people when they read it, so it is kind of nice to go there. And clear the air on it. James 1 verses 9 through 11. This is a great illustration of what it means to be eager in your life for that future glory that's coming. James 1 9 it says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field he will pass away, for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now the lowly brother in verse 9, it seems clearly this is talking about he's, he's poor. This is the Christian believer who's poor. He has no money. He's low. He's a lowly brother in that sense. Then there is the rich and they're both to have glory, but they're both to glory in opposite things the lowly, the poor brothers to glory in his exaltation. Why? Because even though you are poor now, you're a co-heir with Christ. So here you are and you're like, you're going to the store and you're like, I don't have the money to pay for macaroni and cheese. And you're laughing because you're going to inherit the universe. (laughs) And you're like, Lord, this is just, this is piddly stuff now, but I, I am an heir of Jesus Christ. But the rich is to glory in his humiliation. Why? Because he looks at all that wealth he's got. He's Scrooge McDuck. He's diving inside his, swimming in his vat of gold. You remember when you were a kid, that, you were like, does that work? Now I want gold. and Now I care. But no, it doesn't work. You just die. But then he's swimming in his vat of gold. You know, that, that's, and the rich looks at it and he goes, this, this is all worthless. My inheritance in Christ is way more than this, but also all this is gone. And that lowly brother there." He's right here with me. And so he's laughing about the fact that the world sees him as higher, but in the Lord, they're all the same. And it's a beautiful thing that in church, in the early uh, days of church, you could have this like rich believer who comes to church and he could be, maybe he's there, you know, cleaning chairs after service and you got the poorest guy and he's up preaching. (laughs) And it's just this whole flip. And so this is the eager expectation. It's like this stuff doesn't even matter, compared to the glory that's to come. I eagerly expect heaven, so I treat this life on earth very differently. My money's temporary, it's here to serve God. My family, here to serve God. My life, here to serve God. My employment, here to serve God. My education, here to serve God. Whatever I've got, it's here for the Lord, because that's what I'm expecting. And so I have an eager expectation, and it's also, verse 25, we eagerly wait with it, or for it, with perseverance. Perseverance, I think, is okay. So I'm not only eager, but it doesn't peter out. I'm not like the firework that explodes. Boom! That was great. Now I'm done. But I continue to serve the Lord with perseverance. I persevere. I put off sin. I live a godly life, and I set my eyes and mind on heaven for the long haul. It's easy to get excited and get involved in serving the Lord for a week or a month, but can you do it for 40 years? Can you do it for 50 years? Can you do it for 60 years, if the Lord tarries and you're still around? Can you just keep doing and serving God for the long haul with perseverance? Jesus says this, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's giving you the kingdom. He doesn't just make you part of the kingdom. He's giving you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags, which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is there your heart will be also." So we eagerly wait for this hope to be re- realized with perseverance, and that's where we're going to end up in today. But I want to, I want to bring us back to what I opened with, which is this. How does this debunk the health and wealth gospel? because none of this would have been written if the health and wealth gospel was true. What would Romans 8 say if health and wealth was all true? It'd be like, you're co-heirs with Christ, you're reigning right now, forget suffering with him, you're in glory and you will get glory, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. That's, that, that would be, that would be the statement, instead, what do we have? We have our glorious liberty from sin, liberty from the flesh, enjoyment of relationship with God, but these are just the first fruits of the Spirit and we suffer with him, and there is a future time we will be in glory because this life is not going to be right. Though we can be right with God, our life is not going to be right. All this debunks the health and wealth gospel because none of this expectation is needed. You do not need this hope if it is already here. Um, I feel like the, there is very few of these prosperity preachers that will teach verse by verse because they would have to mangle the passage so incredibly in order to get around the obvious implications of the text. But the thing is, they do teach too little, because really God has more prosperity for us than these preachers ever talk about anyways. It's just that their timing is wrong, and their sights are too low. If they would have it where Jesus doesn't sell, sell your money bags and give alms, and you'll get treasures in the heavens, they would have to change that. Sell your money bags, and give alms. And God will give you more money in your money bags again that you just sold. And then you give it to me, and he'll give you more. And you give me, and he gives you more. And you give, and he gives you, and all this kind of garbage. Um, but it's, this seems pretty obvious to people who are in love with Jesus. It doesn't seem like they're too often fallen for this kind of stuff. Um, the reality is that the people who preach prosperity, they appeal to the people who are all about prosperity in this world. And those who have their eyes on Jesus, it, it doesn't really have a lot of appeal to you. Because you want you want more than that. That's petty. Why would I just I just want to be rich? Bah, I glory in that humiliation of that. I, I'm gonna I want I want to serve the Lord and store treasures in heaven. So let's pray. Um, Father, we want to pray that our perseverance would be eager, and that in our eagerness for what you have for us, we persevere. We pray, Lord, that you give us a biblical life, a biblical mind, a biblical heart that we would be able to look in the face of the sorrows of this life, which are many and are hard, and we'd be able to say, seeing it clearly as it is, that it's not worth comparing to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Lord, we pray we'd be a people of hope, hope that carries us through, hope that encourages us in hardship, hope that gives us the right perspective, Lord, And we pray, Lord, that we just be biblically minded in all that we do. And God, we, we love you and we thank you for your uh, your grace, for your kindness to us, and the incredible privilege of knowing, knowing you, God, As and as well and above and beyond that, to, to be your children, to be heirs. It's unimaginable, Lord, what you have in store for us. But let us have it somehow in our imagination so that it would carry us through when we're going through hard times. In Jesus' name you. Yeah.